Welcome to part two of our three-part series on the topic, but I love him. In the last episode, I asked you to reflect on the sincerity in your relationship, meaning do the actions in your relationship consistently align with the notion, I love you? I mean, anyone can be on their best behavior for a few weeks or a few months, but what's the overall vibe in the relationship? Can you go beyond the intense feelings you have for this person to identify the behaviors, to identify what the norms are in your relationship? If you're honest with yourself, can you categorize your relationship as one of trust and honesty and mutual compassion? Or does it really feel more one-sided? Are lies really commonplace? Do you find yourself sacrificing your own values and desires in a relationship in order to kind of keep the peace, quote unquote? Now, I know that this is often easier said than done. Because there are gaps in what we've learned about love and about relationships and about ourselves. And for that reason, today we're going to explore where feelings actually come from. You are listening to What We Should Have Learned in School. You see, we've been taught a pretty problematic explanation for where our feelings actually come from. And it is reinforced everywhere in movies, in songs, in magazine articles, on social media, and probably also by our family and friends. We learned that the formula for how we feel goes something like this. Someone says or does something to us, and that equals a feeling. But this is missing one critical factor from the equation, the individual filter. We all have personal filters And they're our middleman of experience. The filter is the only direct cause of how we feel about anything ever. And why we ignore this natural energetic filter that's built into the process of being human, I will never know. But we all have this as part of being human. There's a part that is responsible for analyzing all the data we come across in our environment. We come across so many things in our life. If we were to taken all of it, we would never get anywhere, never do anything. We'd be, we'd be paralyzed, analysis paralysis style, right? We can agree that our environments are very busy and that there's a lot going on. So this filter is what analyzes the data we come across in our environment. It's what is responsible for sorting it. So that means that by nature of being human, there are things that we will ignore and things that we will put our attention on in our environments. We never have a truly objective 360 view of everything going on. Again, it would just be too much to deal with. And perhaps the most important piece of this process is that this filter that we all have is what is responsible for the meaning that we make of things we come across in our lives. So this filter, for lack of a better word, I want to talk about what it is and then what it isn't. This is very quick. It's a psychological, physical process, and we're not usually consciously aware of it, and we don't usually consciously control it. But that doesn't mean that it's not responsible for how we feel. It is directly responsible for how we feel. So let's give an innocent example. We have a traffic jam with 50 people, and I used to live in New York City, and this was a really common occurrence. So you have the same event, the traffic jam, and you have 50 different people and you have 50 slightly different or completely different reactions to the same exact event. You're going to have one person boiling mad, honking, trying to cut people off. 
You may look over to your right. That person might be jamming out to music, having a great time, a party by themselves. Another person could be talking to a good friend on the phone, not so worried about the traffic jam. Or another person could be panicking, almost on the verge of an anxiety attack. 50 different people, 50 different reactions. Why is this? What accounts for this? According to what we've been taught, things that happen to us make us feel a certain way. But if that's true, then all of the people in the traffic jam would have the same exact feelings. But they don't. Why? Really, I want to take a few moments right now and ask, why? Why can people experience the exact same things but have totally different feelings, totally different reactions to that stimulus. And in the past, psychology and other fields have tried to explain this, and they'll look to things like childhood. Now, even though I'm going to share this following finding with you, I want to make it clear I do not support abuse of any kind, that it is never justified. Okay, (laughs) I want to be clear about that. But however, in cases of something as extreme as, for instance, childhood sexual abuse, Researchers can't find a standardized set of emotional reactions, meaning there is no inbuilt or inevitable outcome for those who experience abuse in childhood. So causation in its purest form doesn't exist here either. Then if folks don't look to environment as the direct cause, they look, okay, well, it must be the genes. The genes are to blame for how we feel. There's a hole in that theory too. Identical twins who have the same exact genetic makeup, they could grow up in the same exact family, have different temperaments, different quote-unquote personalities. So what's the X factor? What's the most direct cause of how we feel? For lack of a better word, it has to be that filtration process, that energetic process that's always occurring within us. Now, I'm not saying that the things that happen around us are not important. I'm just saying they can't directly cause a feeling inside of us. And this is the part of the conversation where I tend to lose people a little bit. (laughs) I'll be honest. (laughs) Because we've been so trained to look to other people or outside things as the source of our happiness or unhappiness. Humans are built to experience a wide range of emotions and feelings, a wide range of sensation. That's what it is to be human. That's what it is to be alive. So it is natural to have all kinds of reactions to the environment. I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong way to react to any of it. That's not what this conversation or this podcast is about. Here is the other thing I am not saying. I am not saying that just because feelings come from within us means we should try to control those thoughts or feelings or that we're to blame for having troublesome thoughts or feelings, what we label as troublesome. Although the whole movement around positive thinking is really well-intentioned, and I think it has been helpful to people, certainly. But that's not what I'm talking about. Because that idea of positive thinking, law of attraction, it involves artificially trying to control nature. You're a human being, you can't get out of being a human being. So trying to control the natural ebbs and flows of emotion and feeling doesn't really make sense to me. If we are constantly trying to control our thoughts and feelings, there are two sides of the same coin. If we're constantly trying to control that, we're always going to be on the losing end of that because we can't get out of being human. We will always have low states of mind, bad quote unquote moods. And sometimes we can see clearly how it's not linked to environment. You know, it could be a really sunny day. Things in life could be going well. 
but you feel really down. You feel depressed. You have no idea why. So what's the point of, of all this? Here's what I'm asking you to consider. Your partner can't directly make you feel anything. So it could be that he or she isn't as special or as powerful as you think that they are when it comes to your own well-being. The thing of it is you're only ever feeling the interpretations, the story you've created about your partner. You can't experience them directly. Remember, there's always that filter every moment of every day. That's how we relate to the world around us. This filter is also responsible for why some people fall in love and why others don't. It's why you can have a totally different opinion of your partner than perhaps your friends do. And even something as physical as sex, because I usually get that a lot. Well, what about sex? That creates all kinds of hormones and endorphins running through your body. But even sex needs some mental buy-in to be great. You know, I don't care how great the physical connection is. If one person is self-conscious about their weight or one person is stressing about all the things they have to do at work, sex for them that time is going to be very different to when they aren't thinking about those things. So there's a psychological component to things as physical as sex too. We talk as if psychology and our physical experience are separate. They are two sides of the same coin. There are two aspects that comprise the same filter that I'm talking about, the filter that's responsible for your feeling state. That simple logic of being human, the fact that feeling is always created from the inside, in my experience, some folks can get very defensive about that because they think that I'm either blaming someone for feeling what they feel I'm not. Or folks think that I'm implying that it's okay then to treat people poorly. I'm not implying that. So I ask you right now to drop your initial reactions to what I'm saying here. And let's look together at the logic of this. It's this inside out phenomenon that can get us biochemically addicted to the relationship. Remember last week when I talked about trauma bonding? Then there's also this, and this sounds extreme, but when researchers look at the brains of people in a hot and heavy relationship and compare it with someone addicted to, for instance, cocaine, they see a lot of similarities. So these are real physiological changes that can occur. Now, these are changes that happen internally over time. And the hope is, and the truth is, if someone can experience these physiological chemical changes to become addicted to a person or thing, then it is always possible for the brain to rewire itself. We now know that the brain is actually quite adaptable. It's quite plastic. It's moldable. Now, how does it get to the point where someone is in a relationship and their brain is mimicking that of a cocaine addict? You see, when any of us experience that kind of over-the-top flattery or we, we feel we're having amazing sex and memorable dates and that this is the person, we have finally found him or her, that unconsciously gets filtered in a positive way. And dopamine is simultaneously released in the brain. Now, dopamine is a chemical substance, and it's associated with our reward centers. It's associated with pleasure. And this could be one of the reasons why you're so afraid that you'll never find someone you love as much, because this dopamine rush feels really good. This is part of being human. But the thing is, with hot and cold partners, they are experts at what's called intermittent reinforcement. More simply, they're masters of being inconsistent. So every time they withdraw their affection or reject you by getting mad at you or blaming you for a problem in the relationship, it can cause physical hurt. 
Remember, psychological and physical, two sides, same coin. And it can cause us to panic and, and strongly search out that next dopamine boost to feel better. And this is an innocent thing to do. This is a very human thing to do, to try to feel better when we feel awful. But the thing is with these hot and cold relationships is, is they facilitate kind of the perfect conditions for more dopamine to be released, for us to get more and more hooked to the situation, more and more tricked into believing that we need this person, that this person is the cause of us feeling loved and us feeling good. It's a lot like gambling. It's that unpredictability factor. You know, gambling addicts don't know when they're going to get their next big hit or their next big win. Just like us that find ourselves in the throes of a hot and cold relationship, we don't know when it's going to be really great again. We know it's possible. We've experienced it in the past. So we're going to give it another chance. You know, he or she's really trying this time. That way of relating to the relationship helps to keep us addicted to the highs and the lows and can also blind us from some of the unhealthy things, some of the things we actually really don't like going on in the relationship. Remember that filter, it's selective. The more strongly we believe something, the more that our personal filter is going to pick up things in our environment that support what we believe. And it's going to completely ignore things in the environment that go against our beliefs. In this case, the belief that he or she's the one or that I've never felt this way about anybody else. Your filter is going to likely trick you and make a case for all the reasons why this person is so great and seriously downplay or completely ignore or rationalize all of the things in the relationship that you actually truly in your heart of hearts are not comfortable with. So what is the point of today? It's a lot of information today, I know. (laughs) But the main take home is this. Just because you love someone, it doesn't mean you need to be in a relationship with him or her. Loving anyone else more than you love yourself is a setup. It's a setup for disappointment and pain because you cannot control what someone else is going to do. You can't control how they feel about you or they treat you. And it can be really tricky because when you make excuses for his behavior, you know, you let him off the hook time and time again, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances. But yet when he projects his own issues onto you, when he withdraws his admiration of you, when he is cheating, but accuses you of cheating, when he is an alcoholic, but accuses you of having a drinking problem, or when he hits you in your most insecure, vulnerable places, when he or she knows exactly what to say to try to prompt you into questioning yourself, when his or her actions or words try to get you to feel like a piece of shit, why is it that he or she gets your forgiveness, yet you remain so harsh and judgmental of yourself? Why can't you at least extend the same courtesy to yourself that you extend to him or her, but you don't forgive yourself as easily? And then you're fighting a war internally. And that is the most uncomfortable friggin' place to be. And it's a psychologically scary place to be. Because when we don't have the awareness of where our feelings are coming from, when we don't accept ourselves for just being human, when we really believe we're not good enough, when we are quick to forgive the other person, but we're harder on ourselves, every time that happens without our awareness, 
it's pretty likely that seeds are planted within ourselves. And those seeds can sprout into serious self-doubt over time. And this is when people report that they begin to lose themselves. They sacrifice their own values in order to avoid conflict with this person, in order for him or her to still like them, to still, quote-unquote, love them. When this happens, a person's perfectly primed and ready and ripe to believe anything their partner says about them. So when he implies that you have all these flaws, but he loves you anyway, and that's proof of how good of a person he is, you believe him. You won't question. And when your friends and family tell you that you deserve better, you won't hear them. You won't believe them. You may even tell them to mind their own damn business because, you know, you love him. Just because you love someone doesn't mean you should or need to be in a relationship with them. In fact, sometimes leaving is the most loving thing that you can do. In next week's episode, we're going to finish up this series by analyzing and answering the question, but what if my partner really wants to change? What then? If you don't want to miss that conversation, be sure to click subscribe. One simple click could really make all the difference. Again, my name is Amy Leo, and you've been listening to What We Should Have Learned in School.